When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia. Movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. From LinkedIn News, I'm Jesse Hempel, host of the Hello Monday podcast. In my 20s, I knew what career success looked like. In midlife, it's not that simple. Work is changing, we are changing, and there's no guidebook for how to make sense of it. Start your week with the Hello Monday podcast. Listen to Hello Monday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. From LinkedIn News, I'm Leah Smart, host of Everyday Better, an award-winning weekly podcast dedicated to personal development. Whether you're looking for ways to shift your mindset or seeking more fulfillment in your life, we've got you covered. Join me as we dive into captivating stories and research-backed ideas that have empowered me and others to lead lives with more clarity and intention. Everyday Better, making growth an everyday practice. Listen to Everyday Better on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, this is Newt. 2020 is going to be one of the most extraordinary election years of our lifetime. I want to invite you to join my inner circle as we discuss each twist and turn in the race in my members-only Inner Circle Club. You will receive special flash briefings, online events, and members-only audio reports from me and my team. Here's a special offer to my podcast listeners. If you join the Inner Circle today at NewtCenterCircle.com and sign up for a one- or two-year membership, I'll send you a free, personally autographed copy of my book, Gettysburg, and a VIP fast pass to my live events. Join my Inner Circle today at NewtCenterCircle.com. Use the code FREEBOOK at checkout. Sign up today at NewtsInnerCircle.com. Code FREEBOOK. This offer ends January 31st. On this episode of Newt's World, we first heard about the coronavirus three weeks ago, and we've been watching the global death toll ever since. As China continues its national quarantine, locking down whole cities. Other countries around the globe worry if they could be next. The question remains, are we facing the next global pandemic? As you'll hear in this episode, we just don't know yet. At the time I recorded this episode, there were 12 cases of coronavirus in the United States, and the death toll in China, where the disease started, is at 563 and continuing to increase. We'll look at the epidemiology of the coronavirus and explain what we as Americans should be concerned about. I'm pleased to welcome my guest, Dr. Anthony Fauci, the director of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases at the National Institutes of Health, and Dr. Peter Dasik, president of the EcoHealth Alliance and a disease ecologist. 
Dr. Anthony Fauci, Director of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases at the National Institutes of Health. Let's talk about what we're going through with coronavirus and what your sense is about the scale of the challenge and the concerns you have. Newt, you know, it's a moving target. It's evolving. It is clearly a very serious problem in China. It could be and turn out to be a very serious problem for the world in that it has the makings and the capability of evolving into a global pandemic. But it's evolving in the sense of we know a lot about it now than we did a month ago, but there's still a lot about it that we don't know. What do we know? We know it is a virus of the coronavirus family, the same virus that gave us the SARS outbreak in 2002 and the MERS, Middle East Respiratory Syndrome, in 2012. It's similar in some respects and different. It's different in that it spreads more easily and rapidly. It also has a situation where the mortality rate now is about 2% when you look at all of the people in China because there's not much infections outside of China. There really are only about 26 countries that have cases that are almost exclusively travel-related cases with some secondary transmissions to people who are close contacts. So a 2% mortality is compared to SARS, which has a 9 to 10% mortality, compared to MERS, which has a 36% mortality. But if you compare it to other respiratory diseases, seasonal flu, which imposes a great disease burden and death throughout the world, in the United States, there are anywhere from 30,000 to 79,000 deaths from flu each year and hundreds of thousands of hospitalizations. We have a situation where the death rate is only 0.1%. Pandemic flu of 1968 was about 0.8 to 1, and the real terrible flu in 1918, the famous Spanish flu, which killed 50 to 100 million people, that had a death rate of about 2%. Now, I do not believe, Newt, that the death rate in this disease is going to stay at 2%. I think it's going to be less because as the disease spreads more, you get more people who are minimally symptomatic or asymptomatic. So the denominator of the calculation becomes much, much bigger. So as of last night, there were 28,000 cases reported and about 550 or so deaths, which gives you a 2% death rate. However, if you count all of the people who are either asymptomatic or minimally symptomatic, the denominator increases and that goes down. The critical issue that really is evolving now is the draconian actions that have been taken, both by the Chinese, where they've cut off 50 million people, preventing travel by train, by air, by ferry, in and out of cities like Wuhan, which has 11 million people, and other countries, which are, to a greater or lesser degree, closing their borders. And the United States, which has done the unprecedented move of doing a temporary type of 
travel restriction from China. In general, those kinds of moves have potentially unintended negative consequences. But the purpose of doing that, I think, has some logic to it, Newt, in that these kinds of restrictions tend to not stop the ultimate spread of an outbreak, but to slow it down from getting into a particular country. So if we could slow this down enough until it actually turns the corner itself on the basis of what the Chinese are doing to try and contain it, and on the basis of as you get into the spring weather with warmth, coronaviruses tend not to spread very well at all. Same as flu. And the reason why you have a peak flu season in January and February, and yet by March and April, it goes down. So we're playing this interesting strategy of trying to keep the lid on things until it actually turns itself around. At the same time, we are very actively trying to develop a vaccine. And we're going to do something, Newt, that I wouldn't say would surprise you, but I think you'll be impressed that the fastest we've ever gotten into a vaccine from the time we have made the sequence of the virus known was with Zika. We did it in about four months. Previously, it took a year or two or more to go from getting the virus to even getting a vaccine into a phase one safety trial. We're projecting that from the time we got the sequence, which was about two and a half, three weeks ago, that we will be in a phase one trial within about two months. That will take about three months to get safety data and immunogenicity. And then you go into phase two, which would probably take another six to eight months. So even with emergency use authorization, if we're successful, we're not going to have a vaccine for at least a year and probably more. Having said that, that is the fastest anyone has ever gone from knowing the sequence of a virus and getting a vaccine into a human trial. But it also tells us that between now and then, the tools that we have are classic public health tools of identification, isolation, and contact tracing. What has been the breakthrough that's accelerating all this? I mean, how much of it goes back to basic research in DNA and developing capacity for gene analysis? that comes out of basic science, and how much of it comes from other kind of breakthroughs? Well, I would say, ultimately, fingerprints of basic science are on everything that I'm talking about. Let me give you just one example. When the virus was isolated very quickly in China, and the sequence was put on a public database, just having the ability to sequence a virus in a couple of days as opposed to a year the way it used to be. Basic science brought us there. The CDC took that sequence and was able to make a PCR-based diagnostic literally within a week. They've quality controlled it. And yesterday, the FDA did an emergency use authorization to ship those kits to 190 state and local health authorities throughout the United States so that we can do the kind of testing as Americans get air of that 
out of Wuhan. The Chinese are doing the same thing. But also, superimposed upon that, is the other thing that I believe you're alluding to, is the classic 19th and 20th century public health measures of observation, identification, isolation, and contact tracing. So science has its fingerprints on everything because we could not do the diagnostics. We could not even think about a vaccine. We couldn't do drug screening nor targeted drug development. None of that would be able to be done without science. I'm sort of appalled at the way that the Chinese government has responded, and I don't understand how you can quarantine entire cities. We are trying to get our epidemiologists and our scientists who before this coronavirus situation had long been collaborating with our Chinese scientific colleagues. There's a big difference between the Chinese scientific colleagues and Chinese political officials. We want to go over there, not only help them, but actually take a look at what's going on. When SARS came about in 2002, it was revealed after examination, and everyone agrees, that they were egregiously non-transparent in letting the world know what was going on in China for at least a couple of months. And by that time, the horse was out of the barn. They have been much more transparent now, we think. But one of the things they did, again, that's wrong, in the first few weeks of the outbreak, they were telling the Chinese people that this was just an animal-to-human infection, which I think originally it was, but they were saying there's no human-to-human transmission. At the time they were saying that, it was clear that there was infection in early December, which was being spread underneath the radar screen, and the population was not alerted to the danger, and things were being done, like attending festivals of 40,000 people or more, instead of socially distancing themselves so that they don't spread. So that kind of lack of transparency, even in this, has been a problem. Getting to your question, about essentially locking down tens of millions of people. I believe they feel that since the horse is a bit out of the barn here, in order to prevent the total spread of infection out of Wuhan, which clearly is the epicenter, the city of Wuhan in the province of Hubei, they feel that if they do that, which is unprecedented, they may prevent the further spread You know, normally you would say, well, that's something that is really draconian and shouldn't have been done. In general, that's correct. But I think they're faced with such an unusual, unprecedented situation that I really hesitate to be critical of that right now because I don't think they have many other choices since they have such a terrible, unprecedented problem right now. I just saw some pictures this morning where they literally have piled dirt up to block roads. So you, you can't just drive out of the city. But at least in the case of Wuhan, that means they got to find a way to get food into there. I mean, as you know, even dealing with a relatively small population, when you're trying to deal with it by quarantine, it's very complicated. 
how do you feed and take care of 11 million people without in the process having functionally broken down the quarantine, even if it's technically still in place? Because you have to have people moving around the city or people will starve to death. Newt, you're absolutely correct. And that is clearly one of the well-recognized collateral type of negative impact that one can have with that. The Chinese are saying that they are able to get supplies and food and other necessities to the people that are there. They're doing some amazing things. The fact that they have put up a thousand bed hospital in like a week, which is beyond imagination to be able to do that. So I don't know, since we're not there, what they're doing, but they're saying that despite these rather strict limitations on travel where they shut down an entire city, they're saying that they actually can get supplies and necessities to these people. Hopefully when we get over there, and I hope we do get over there soon, we'll be able to see for ourselves and perhaps help them, but also learn from them. Were they more open during SARS, or was it a similar pattern of being very cautious about opening up to the world and what they're doing? In the beginning of SARS, they were quite non-transparent. And I think that's one of the reasons why the outbreak took off. Once the world knew what was going on and SARS spread from Guangdong province to Hong Kong, and then the massive infection of about more than 19 people who then got on planes and went elsewhere, then it didn't make any difference how transparent they were because it was in the rest of the world. But in the beginning of the SARS epidemic, they clearly were not transparent. Coming up, we'll discuss the source of the coronavirus. When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. From LinkedIn News, I'm Leah Smart, host of Everyday Better, an award-winning weekly podcast dedicated to personal development. Whether you're looking for ways to shift your mindset or seeking more fulfillment in your life, we've got you covered. You can build internal resources. That's what the study of psychology is about, building internal resources. Turning towards is one of the most important elements of successful relationships, no matter what kind of relationship it is. The thing that underpins all of this productivity stuff is finding a way to make the journey itself enjoyable. The journey is the destination. The beauty of uncertainty is infinite possibility. When you don't know what's next, you don't know what's next. And thus, anything can be next. 
Join me as we dive into captivating stories and research-backed ideas that have empowered me and others to lead lives with more clarity and intention. Everyday Better, making growth an everyday practice. Listen to Everyday Better on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. From LinkedIn News, I'm Jesse Hempel, host of the Hello Monday podcast. In my 20s, I knew what career success looked like. In midlife, it's not that simple. I've been a journalist for two decades, writing cover stories for Business Week, Fortune, and Wired. And now, every Monday, I bring you conversations with people who are thinking deeply about work and where it fits into our lives. Like Microsoft CEO Satya Nadella on growth mindsets. The learn-it-all does better than the know-it-all. Or MacArthur Genius winner Angela Duckworth on talent versus grit. Your long-term effort and your long-term commitment are surprisingly important. Each episode delivers pragmatic advice for right now. Listen to Hello Monday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. One of the things I'd like you to talk about briefly is you have this pattern in China, whether it's the bird flu or it's SARS or it's the African swine flu, and now with coronavirus, you seem to have a pattern of animal-to-human transmission that doesn't seem to exist much anywhere else. How do you analyze that? The one thing we have to be careful that this gets interpreted as blaming the Chinese. It isn't. It's a situation, if you look at evidence, influenza, the interface, and I've done that myself when I've gone to the Far East, including China, you see that you have pigs next to ducks, next to chickens, next to people. And that's the worst possible scenario that you have for influenza jumping species from an animal reservoir to a human. The wet markets that have exotic animals in them. You're not talking about a big chicken farm. You're not talking about raising pigs. You're talking about getting exotic animals from the wild, who we know from genetic screening that these animals have reservoirs for viruses that are fundamentally animal viruses, but they can evolve and adapt themselves to humans. So to your point, you could say to yourself, wait a minute, why don't we just stop that and somehow revamp it so you don't have this interface in a manner and under circumstances that could lead to the jumping of species from an animal reservoir to a human. But the fact is the customs and the traditions and things that people have done for centuries are so ingrained in the population that the Chinese authorities and the Chinese people have found it very difficult to make those kinds of changes. But I think they really need to take another fresh look at that because just with SARS and MERS and now coronavirus, it's clear that when you have a close interface between certain animal situations and humans, there's a risk of an outbreak that could have serious consequences. I don't know if you have had access to enough information from the Chinese, but as you know, there's a sort of urban legend that there's a biological warfare center in Wuhan, 
and that the coronavirus escaped from that. Did you have any sense of where it probably came from? Well, I think ultimately we know that these things come from an animal reservoir. I've heard these conspiracy theories, and like all conspiracy theories, they're just conspiracy theories. Is it impossible that that could have happened? I don't think I can say that it's not impossible, but I think if you examine all of the isolates and look at the very detailed pattern or map of their molecular structure, you may get more insight as to whether it was a natural direct jump, whether it percolated in another species from the bat to whatever, a civic cat or some other animal, and then jump species into humans. I think the more you examine isolates and the more we get information, we'll be able to clarify the evolutionary origin of the virus. But right now, I think the things you're hearing are still in the realm of conspiracy theories without any scientific basis for it. The most dangerous viruses seem to come out of animal populations, largely in Western Africa. And we respond to them very aggressively because their mortality rates are so high. Is that just a part of the same pattern in your mind that you're seeing in terms of species jumping to humans? Or is there something different about the West Africa, and why are they such higher mortality rates? The jumping of species, there's a common denominator. It is manifested in a different way in Far Eastern countries than it is in Africa, but the common denominator is two things, the way I look at it. It's the interface in a somewhat unusual way between the animal population and the human population. That could be deliberately having people who are in the agricultural raising of chickens and pigs in the Far East, where you have these animals that can serve as a mixing vessel or a reservoir. You essentially, by odds alone, allow viruses to jump species to humans. In Africa, a great example of that is the emergence of HIV, which was fundamentally a virus of non-human primates, particularly chimpanzees, which because of an unusual interface of butchering these for what we call bushmeat, that there was the jumping of species from the chimp or another non-human primate to a human, which then spread throughout the human population. The bottleneck of that, Newt, is how well a virus adapts itself to being able to replicate in humans. More often than not, there are one-offs where some virus, be it H5N1 flu, H7N9 flu, or what have you, jumps, let's say, from a chicken to a human, replicates in that human, and has a high mortality, and I'll get back to high mortality in a minute. What happens is unless that virus mutates enough to adapt itself to efficient replication in the humans, you're not going to have an outbreak of any consequence. It'll be one-offs, the way we've seen with H5N1 and H7N9. Every once in a while, 
It isn't a one-off. That's what we saw in 2009 with the swine flu, which originated somewhere around Southern California and Northern Mexico, where the virus jumped from a pig to a human, but it did it with the necessary mutations to allow it to adapt itself for very efficient spread in humans. So you contrast that jump species with the chicken to human, which went nowhere. So the interesting thing that seems to be another common denominator is that when these viruses first jump species, they either have a high degree of mortality or a high degree of transmissibility. The higher the transmissibility, the less the mortality. We're seeing exactly that with the new coronavirus. With SARS, the virus is not very adaptable in the sense of massive transmission from human to human. And the mortality is quite high. It's 9 to 10%. With the coronavirus, it's much, much better adapted to humans than SARS. And the mortality is much less. That doesn't happen every single time, but it is absolutely more the rule than the exception that as you adapt yourself as a virus to better transmissibility, you're less lethal. Given that there's already a relatively low mortality rate, I mean, how concerned should Americans be about coronavirus spreading in the U.S.? I think we're, as of today, we're at about 12 cases. Right. Well, right now, the risk is relatively low. In fact, I would take the relatively out and say the risk is low for Americans. That's the good news. The somewhat concerning news is that this could change because this is a moving target. It's an evolving situation. We have been very fortunate that the cases that came in travel-related have been able to be addressed appropriately and successfully by identification, isolation, and contact tracing. But if we have a broader global outbreak where there are cases that are giving the kind of sustained transmission in multiple different countries besides China, right now China is the only place where there's sustained transmission. There have been about 30 countries that have travel-related cases, and 25 of those There are human-to-human transmissibility, but in none of them are really sustained transmissibility, which is the reason why, technically, the WHO is not calling this a global pandemic. But once there's sustained transmission in multiple countries throughout the world, then you're dealing with a real pandemic, and then it becomes a threat to the American people. But right now, that is a low risk. But we have to keep an eye out on it and take it extremely seriously. Do you think that the process of bringing Americans home from China and in some cases quarantining people who have some symptoms, do you think that's an appropriate response at this stage? I do, Newt. It was a difficult decision because you don't like to do those things unless it's necessary because sometimes it can instill fear in people. They tend to panic. Or it also encroaches on some of the liberties of people. But sometimes you have to make that choice. The people who are being quarantined 
are not people who are sick. Those are people who were in an area at high risk. And if they were in Wuhan over the past 14 days, they have to get quarantined when they come in for the 14-day incubation period. And that is institutional quarantine. If they are an American citizen and coming from any other part of China besides Wuhan and come into the country, they have the same restriction over the 14-day period, but they can do that in a voluntary self-isolation. The institutional quarantine is only if you come from Wuhan. But if you get symptoms, it goes from quarantine to actually true isolation and treatment. So the quarantine mostly is to let people run out the incubation period so that they can then be released and go into society. I just spent four days in Korea and Seoul and observed a couple of things. About 80 or 85% of the people in the airport were wearing masks. And in walking into a one high-end hotel, every person who walked in, they had this device that would instantly check your temperature. They put it up against your wrist. And they were checking every single person to see if they had a raised temperature. In reports that are coming out of China, fever is the most common manifestation of the people who were recognized as being ill in reports coming out of China. About 98% of them had fever. So fever was a good indication. It's quite debatable about masks. Masks are more to prevent people who are infected from infecting other people. The mask that you buy in a drugstore would be not particularly efficient in keeping out virus. And that's the reason why we do not recommend people wearing masks. Yet, it makes some people feel more comforted, and perhaps it can have some slight to modest effect, but it isn't a primary effective barrier against transmission. So taking the temperature and then questioning and doing a good exam and potentially isolating people with temperatures, obviously the public health measure to do. But there's a lot of concern and debate and disagreement about masks. Listen, I really appreciate your taking this kind of time. You are truly a national treasure. Your total impact of your career is astonishing. I don't know of anybody who's dealt with more potentially disastrous problems than you have. But I feel like we've really come a long way both in our ability to understand diseases and in our ability at the public health side to respond to them in pretty dramatically rapid time compared to 30 or 40 years ago. And a good piece of that is due to your work. Well, thank you for those kind words. And I appreciate them. There's a lot of people who are involved in helping us with this. Thank you. Dr. Anthony Fauci has been the director of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases at the National Institutes of Health since 1984. Hear how he got his start in his field at newtsinnercircle.com. It's a subscription service where I offer insights and commentary on the issues that matter to me most. Join today at newtsinnercircle.com. Next, how deadly is the coronavirus? When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia, movement that inspires. 
Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. From LinkedIn News, I'm Jesse Hempel, host of the Hello Monday podcast. In my 20s... I knew what career success looked like. In midlife, it's not that simple. I've been a journalist for two decades, writing cover stories for Business Week, Fortune, and Wired. And now, every Monday, I bring you conversations with people who are thinking deeply about work and where it fits into our lives. Like Microsoft CEO Satya Nadella on growth mindsets. The learn-it-all does better than the know-it-all. Or MacArthur Genius winner Angela Duckworth on talent versus grit. Your long-term effort and your long-term commitment are surprisingly important. Each episode delivers pragmatic advice for right now. Listen to Hello Monday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. From LinkedIn News, I'm Leah Smart, host of Every Day Better, an award-winning weekly podcast dedicated to personal development. Whether you're looking for ways to shift your mindset or seeking more fulfillment in your life, we've got you covered. You can build internal resources. That's what the study of psychology is about, building internal resources. Turning towards is one of the most important elements of successful relationships, no matter what kind of relationship it is. The thing that underpins all of this productivity stuff is finding a way to make the journey itself enjoyable. The journey is the destination. The beauty of uncertainty is infinite possibility. When you don't know what's next, you don't know what's next. And thus, anything can be next. Join me as we dive into captivating stories and research-backed ideas that have empowered me and others to lead lives with more clarity and intention. Everyday Better, making growth an everyday practice. Listen to Everyday Better on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Newt. 2020 is going to be one of the most extraordinary election years of our lifetime. I want to invite you to join my inner circle as we discuss each twist and turn in the presidential race in my members-only Inner Circle Club. You'll receive special flash briefings, online events, and members-only audio reports from me and my team. Here is a special offer for my podcast listeners. Join my Inner Circle today at newtsinnercircle.com slash podcast. And if you sign up for a one- or two-year membership, you'll get 10% off your membership price and a VIP Fast Pass to my live events. Join my inner circle today at newtsinnercircle.com slash podcast. Use the code podcast at checkout. Sign up today at newtsinnercircle.com slash podcast and use the code podcast. Hurry, this offer expires February 14th. Dr. Peter Dosick. You've got very engaged in this whole question of public health and how do we deal with it. Can you explain what the EcoHealth Alliance is? 
what we do at EcoHealth is we look at the connection between these viruses that are emerging and affecting public health and what is underlying that. And it turns out, and it's a bunch of research that we've done, but it turns out that almost all emerging disease are linked to some underlying driver, some cause that's related to people. It's things like travel and trade and building roads into forests around the world. We have this unprecedented population growth. We're doing things on the planet that we never used to do. We're building roads into the remotest forests. And what we do is we come into contact with wildlife species and pick up their viruses. What we do at EcoHealth is look at the relationship between people and animals and the environment and how that leads to pandemics. And we try and do something about it. You know, we do the science and then we get on the ground in these places. And we've been working in China for 15 years. And we say, what is it that people are doing that's building a risk for them to pick up new diseases? That when those diseases happen, they always gravitate to the US, Europe, the countries that travel a lot. If we can deal with it there, we can stop it getting here. So when you look at what's happened with coronavirus, what's your sense of how the Chinese have responded so far? Well, if you compare it to what they did with SARS, it's orders of magnitude better. China is a very interesting country to me. When you're on the ground working with scientists, it's completely open and collaborative, just like working with U.S. scientists. And they just want to do interesting work and publish it and make a name for themselves. But, of course, at the same time, there's an authoritarian government that can move extremely quickly to close things down and to change policy. So what we've seen is those two things playing out. We've seen scientists at the very beginning of this outbreak finding the virus quickly, within two weeks, sequencing the whole genome of the virus and publishing it on the web. That would never have happened 20 years ago. The reason that's really important is because if we get that genetic sequence around the world, we can then design diagnostic tests to start testing people who are coming into the country. So that was a very good move. Then you've got the government coming in and doing what I think are actually very bold public health measures like blocking travel within China during the Lunar New Year. I thought that was just such a strong move. But of course, that's China. They have the capacity to do it and the people will go along with that to some extent. The coronavirus probably came from one of the food markets, although there is a sort of secondary rumor that there's a biological weapons laboratory in Wuhan and it may have come from there. Is it your sense that it's almost certain that it came from an animal-to-human transmission? All the evidence says that, that that's what happened. I mean, again, it's not as exciting as the movie release of a bioweapon, but the real bioterrorist out there is nature. We've got wildlife carrying, we estimate, 1.7 million unknown viruses in mammals alone. About half a million to 800,000 of those can probably infect us. We don't know what they are. We don't know where they are. It turns out that bats in China and all across Southeast Asia carry a whole host of probably pretty risky viruses. We've been out there discovering these new viruses. We've found 500 of them so far, including the closest relative to this one. It looks to me and to most scientists like it's a bat virus that got into people either in the market or in rural China and just unfortunately has the capacity to spread. We surveyed people in southwest China and found 2 to 3% of them had antibodies to bat viruses. They were exposed as a matter of a 
course of everyday life in a very low level. But if you multiply that by 1.2 billion people, by people who intimately connect to wildlife through eating them and butchering them, you get a high risk, and eventually this thing is going to happen. Is the bat genome so similar to ours that that's a major reason why it's able to to be such a carrier and have such a leap across to humans? That's a really good question. We know that HIV has a relationship with a chimpanzee virus, and we think that it probably came from chimpanzees. Chimpanzees are famously 99% similar to us. Bats are less similar. But if you look at the surface proteins of the cells, they have a receptor that these viruses can bind to, and it's very similar to the one that we have. Surprisingly, bats are fairly close to us evolutionarily, enough for their viruses to sometimes be able to bind. And what we look at when we find a new virus in bats, we sequence the genes of the protein that binds to the cells, and we say, does that look like it could get into people? And this one can. So how seriously do you take the coronavirus given what looks like a relatively low fatality rate, at least so far. I'm pretty optimistic about it, and optimism based on facts. Your point is right. The mortality rate is low. It's 2%, probably may even drop, as we find that more people got mild infections. We just didn't know about them. Secondly, yes, this thing's spread out of China, and we've got cases here in the States and all around Europe and other countries, but those are controlled pretty well, and we're not seeing human-to-human transmission in countries outside China. That's a good thing. If that starts to happen and we see that travelers come into a country and seed a new epidemic, then you've got a real problem. I mean, I do worry a bit. When I look at a map of where this virus is, Africa and Latin America are just blank. And I just don't buy that. I think that there are probably people who have traveled to African countries from China who are infected and were just not caught yet. So We may see a few little clusters here and there, but I think that in two, three months, this will be on the way out. And I expect that in a year, we won't be able to find this virus in people anymore around the world. We keep having waves of viruses coming, avian virus, SARS. They currently have a huge problem with the African swine flu, which has just decimated their pig herd. Is all of this a function of these markets where there's so many different kinds of animals brought together. People, therefore, have a greater range of options to pick up diseases. Yeah, I think that's a big part of it, but there's there are a couple of other things, too. We actually did an analysis of every single emerging disease that we've ever come across on the planet and said, well, where are they coming from and what's driving it? And it turns out there are certain regions where these things tend to come from. Southeast Asia is one of them. Central and West Africa and Latin America are hotspots, too. The reason that they have all these issues is that we've got a lot of wildlife in those places, a lot of wildlife diversity, and they carry their own viruses. The more wildlife you've got, the more species, the more viruses you've got. There's a lot of people in a lot of these countries. They're developing countries, rapidly building road and infrastructure. Um, They're still eating bushmeat. China is right in the middle of the Southeast Asia hotspot. It's got all of this dense population, even in rural areas. And a lot of them are still doing very, very traditional things like eating snakes, bamboo rats, primates, bats. We meet people who eat bats in rural China and they do it for medicinal purposes and they say they're very tasty. In medieval times, it wouldn't have been a big deal. A couple of people may have been infected and the virus would go away. But when we're so connected on the planet now 
and China is extremely connected, these viruses are going to spread. And that's the problem we've got. The worst diseases we see are diseases that get into people and don't cause illness for a few weeks. This new coronavirus, in the early stages of the outbreak, there are plenty of people who got this we don't yet know about who just thought they had a cold or pneumonia. In the more elderly patients, it gets very severe. But if a young person probably didn't even go into the clinic, those are the worst diseases because you have these hidden cases that are wandering around in the community infecting other people. And I think what's really good is that scientists got the virus quickly and now there are some really good tests. So if someone comes into an airport with pneumonia, you can very quickly find out whether they're infected with this virus or not. In the long run, what would you say is success? Between SARS and now, we've been working in China for 15 years, in one of the many countries we're working, tracking these viruses, finding new viruses, raising the flag and saying these are a risk. The problem really is big picture things didn't change. Things like the wildlife trade, which still goes on. Things like access to bat caves. If we know bat caves carry viruses, why are people still walking in those things? Why are people still hunting them? If we know that communities are being exposed, let's get into those communities, teach them how to avoid the risk of getting infected. We're treating pandemics in the wrong way. You know, think about terrorism. 9-11 was a wake-up call. We don't wait for a terrorist attack and then mop up afterwards. We get out there and we find out where the terrorist cells are hiding. We listen to what they're doing and we hear the rumors of an attack and we send in the drones. With a pandemic, we just wait for it to happen and hope we're going to get vaccines. That's the wrong approach. And I think we need to treat these pandemics as just an extrinsic risk to people and the way we do business on the planet. And let's deal with that risk in a mature way. Let's get ready for it. Let's prevent it. Let's find out where all these viruses are. Let's get into those hotspots and build infrastructure to protect people. Let's teach people how to avoid it. And let's get rid of activities that are going to produce the next pandemic, like the wildlife trade, bushmeat hunting, or at least monitor it and test people and find them at the very early stages. What's your reaction to China quarantining an entire city? We have colleagues in China who went home to see the family for New Year. They can't get back. I live in New York and work in the city, and I just wonder what would happen if the mayor of New York said, sorry, guys, you can't leave. You're stuck. You have real problems. But China is different, and people in China, I think, first of all, they understand that they live in a very dense population, and they know they're at risk from pandemics. They've had them before, bird flu, SARS. So that's one thing. So they're ready for this sort of control measure. Secondly, they're used to a government that puts in place restrictions that we wouldn't accept in the West. So I think for the Chinese population, they're just going to live through this. The virus is going to go away and they're going to be happy. From a disease prevention point of view, international travel bans aren't that effective. The best thing you can do is to test people when they arrive, find the cases and get them in hospital and treat them in good quarantine measure. Locking down a city is a pretty harsh measure that often doesn't work. And the reason that there's a problem with that is people try and dodge the regulations and they'll hide the symptoms to move. We saw that in the US. Remember the Ebola patient who came back and went to a hospital with a fever and they said, had you been to Africa? And they said, no. And it turns out they had and they actually infected a nurse. People do deceptive things. So bands are often 
ineffective. But when you've got a city like Wuhan with 16,000 cases, that harsh measure may actually do some good in this sense. I can't quite imagine if they have to sustain it very long, how you keep an entire city quarantined. Well, it's not sustainable. China can probably do it better than most countries because they've got the logistics and supply chain and they'll bring in the army. But look what happened in Ebola. There were some towns, cities in West Africa that people did this in. The police blocked out the town. There were so many Ebola cases. There were riots on the street. And what a riot does, you've got a national security problem with a raging infection as well. That's a recipe for disaster. It's not a sustainable strategy, but I think that the equation that President Xi Jinping is working with is this virus will be over within a few weeks and then we can loosen the regulations. I think that's true and I hope it happens. There's a gamble there that this is a very short run crisis. I think it's a fair gamble, to be honest. We're looking at this now, we're five and a half, six weeks in. It's not reached hundreds of thousands of cases. The mortality rate is staying low. We're not seeing human-to-human transmission in a big way outside China. It'll wait another couple of weeks. It'll continue to rise, but eventually it's got a peak, and then we're going to see caseloads drop. One of the problems is people get ill for a long time, and that's going to keep the caseload high. But I think within two, three months, we'll be at the back end of this. My hunch is you are right. I've had a feeling all along that the mortality rate wasn't anything like you'd experience and that the rate of transmission human to human was so low. Air travel is the way that these viruses are going to get around. And if we can target those airports, get ready for it, we can do a lot to stop these outbreaks spreading. And I think in this case, the speed of the worldwide response has been pretty amazing. To see China releasing information at this level is amazing. To see WHO declaring an emergency is really good. This is a real emergency because it's global at this point. But my concern is, do we really have to wait until you know, a thousand people die before we start dealing with these pandemics as a real problem and getting ready for them before they emerge? A true pandemic, a true black swan event would break down all of the security measures we've got in place because your frontline responders are going to get sick. They're probably going to get sick first. So all of those measures are going to disappear early on and it's going to be security issues and riots. Pandemics have that capacity. The security people in the U.S. know that. They know that in China. They're doing things to get ready. But let's get really ahead of the curve. Let's find out where these things come from and let's work to stop them emerging in the first place. That's our mission. I really appreciate your sharing with us. I really appreciate you talking about this new and taking the big picture look as you always do. Thank you to my guests, Dr. Anthony Fauci and Dr. Peter Dawson. You can read more about the coronavirus on our show page at newtsworld.com. Newtsworld is produced by Westwood One. Our executive producer is Debbie Myers, and our producer is Garnsey Slump. Our editor is Robert Borowski, and our researcher is Rachel Peterson. Our guest booker is Tamara Coleman. The artwork for the show was created by Steve Penley. The music was composed by Joey Selby. Special thanks to the team at Gingrich 360 and Westwood One's John Wardock and Robert Mathers. 
please email me with your comments at newt at newtsworld.com. If you've been enjoying Newt's World, I hope you'll go to Apple Podcast and both rate us with five stars and give us a review so others can learn what it's all about. I'm Newt Gingrich. This is Newt's World. The Westwood One Podcast Network. When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia. Movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. From LinkedIn News, I'm Jesse Hempel, host of the Hello Monday podcast. In my 20s, I knew what career success looked like. In midlife, it's not that simple. Work is changing, we are changing, and there's no guidebook for how to make sense of it. Start your week with the Hello Monday podcast. Listen to Hello Monday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. From LinkedIn News, I'm Leah Smart, host of Everyday Better, an award-winning weekly podcast dedicated to personal development. Whether you're looking for ways to shift your mindset or seeking more fulfillment in your life, we've got you covered. Join me as we dive into captivating stories and research-backed ideas that have empowered me and others to lead lives with more clarity and intention. Everyday Better, making growth an everyday practice. Listen to Everyday Better on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.